guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. I know some of y'all, um, this your normal church home that you heard me on Sunday say the three o'clock would not be crowded. Sorry. But the 4.30 will be worse. So you just, you keep that in mind. Even if it's not, you tell yourself 4.30 was going to be worse. Kids, y'all did a great job, I thought. Wonderful. I was in the choir for one week at First Methodist. That's where I grew up. One week I made it. That, that was it. First Sunday I was out. I realized I couldn't do it. And then I found out later I was tone deaf, so I don't think anybody was too concerned that I had dropped out of the choir. The guy definitely didn't come and chase me down and ask me to get back in, that's for sure. Uh, we've, we've spent the last month looking at gifts that Jesus brings to us on Christmas. We've talked about hope and joy and peace, things that we all desire in greater levels in our life. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the one who's truly worthy of our worship. All of us, we, we're made to worship, and we're going to worship someone or something, and he's the only one who can, who's worthy and the only one who can withstand the pressure of being the center of the universe. And to, to, this afternoon, I want to talk about the gift that's that it's fundamental. It, it goes before all of those other gifts, and it's love. Love comes first, and every other good thing that we receive from God originates and is motivated by love. That most well-known verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but will live forever. Forever. If you want to know why, why Christmas, why all of this, and why all of that out there, and all of the things that you'll be doing tonight, and then all of the things that you'll be doing tomorrow, the answer is because God so loved the world. That's it. Why Christmas? Because God so loved the world. If I ask you to define love, you may struggle to do that. It's one of the words that we use it all the time in lots of contexts, but we use it so often though it maybe loses its meaning. We don't really think about what we're saying. We apply that word to all kinds of different objects, and we say we may love God, we may love our spouse, we love our kids, we love our dog, we love this particular food or this restaurant or this team. We love all kinds of things. And so again, sometimes the, that word gets maybe watered down a little bit. When I think about the way we use love, I think that we oftentimes mean we really, really, really like something. Or we, we, we like something the most in a particular category. I love hot tamales. That's my favorite candy. It's the thing I like the most in that category. Oftentimes, it refer, we, we think about it romantically, with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, fiance, spouse. And love the way we mean it is almost always dependent on the recipient. There's something about the one or the thing that causes us to be drawn to it, that, that creates a fondness in us for love. The New Testament's really different. The, the New Testament de definition of love is very different. To love according to the Bible is to do what's best for someone else regardless of the cost to yourself. That's why Jesus can say, love your enemies. He's not saying you need to really, really, really like your enemies. He's saying you need to do what's best for them, even if it hurts you. That's what it means to love, according to the New Testament, to do what's best for someone else, even at great cost to yourself. And love always demands expression. We see that in the way we use love and in the way the Bible uses love. 
Love always demands expression. It, it wants to be shown. And again, sometimes we think about romantic love. We think about these romantic gestures, these grand gestures. And some of you maybe can have done that in your own life. Maybe a, a, you had a proposal and it was kind of an over-the-top deal or your wedding was an over-the-top deal or an anniversary. Uh, ben Affleck, you remember him? He was girlfriend was Jennifer Lopez. And what he gave her as an expression of his love, he gave her a $105,000 toilet seat. Jewel-encrusted toilet seat. Rubies, sapphires, diamonds. I think there was some plastic on it so she didn't cut herself. But that's what he gave her. Apparently, she does not like using... I think she likes her own toilet seat. So it was portable. She took it with her everywhere she went. Interesting expression of love. There was a guy, his name was Winston. He was married to a woman named Judith. They were married for 33 years and then she died. He was devastated. So he took this six acre piece of land. As these oak trees grew, there was this heart shape in the middle and the tip of the heart pointed to her home. Extravagant expressions of love. Maybe most famous, Taj Mahal. Uh, Y'all made hundreds and he was married to, uh, he, he was married to a lot of women, but his favorite wife, she, uh, they had this, apparently they, they, they kind of love at first sight. He's, he's 14 and she's 15 and they get married after a five-year courtship and on, she's having his 14th child and she dies in childbirth. And as she's dying, he says, I'm going to build you the, the biggest and the best mausoleum anyone's ever seen. And I'm not going to marry anybody else. I don't know how many wives I already had, but I'm not going to marry anybody else. And he does, and he builds this Taj Mahal. 22,000 people over 20 years build this thing. At today's dollars, 827 million. Extravagant expressions of love. The God has, some, has maybe the most, I would say, extravagant expression of love. Romans 5 says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us. New Testament love, not I really, really, really like you. New Testament love, God so loved. God was so committed to our best that even at great cost to himself, the life of his son, he gave him in order that we may experience eternal life. I don't know if you think of yourself as dead. We usually don't. We're walking around. Our lives are full. We're busy. We got things going on. But the Bible says we're all dead in our sins and in our trespasses, and we need to be rescued by Jesus. That's why, again, why Christmas? Because God was so committed to our best that even at great cost to himself, the life of his son, he sent Jesus so that all who believe in him, we don't have to die. But again, for some of us, that doesn't resonate because we don't feel dead. When we think about death, we think about somebody being buried in the ground. But we're all spiritually dead apart from the work of Jesus. I'm going to tell you a story really briefly that you probably heard from Luke 15. It's a different picture of what it means to be dead. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So what he's saying, I'm going to talk a little bit just to explain. What he's saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want my money. I don't want any relationship with you anymore. He's saying this to his father while his father is still alive. I don't want any relationship with you anymore. I wish you were dead, but you're not. So why don't you go ahead and give me what's mine now? 
So the father divided his property between his two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. So wealth would have been land. It would have been livestock. It would have been crops. And this guy made his dad liquidate all of it, give him what was his, and he left, went to a Gentile country. And he squanders his money. He wastes it. We don't know what he does. You can fill in the blanks. He wastes everything that his father gives him. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that entire country, and he began to be in need. Most of us, we don't have any experience with famine. Think of the desperation. You don't have, there's no way of putting food on the table anymore. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So for a Jew, this is the worst job. Like whatever your worst job is, you think of that, that's what this guy was doing. It was his worst job. As a Jew, he was feeding pigs. It's not just the manual labor. It's not just that pigs are dirty. They're unclean. And so he touches a pig, then he's unclean. It's reminding him all the time. I'm distant from my father. I'm distant from my family. I'm distant from my community, and I'm distant from God. Pigs eat these things called carob pods, and they eat them raw, and a person can't digest that. So he couldn't eat the food even if he wanted to that these pigs are eating. He is desperate. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants or day laborers have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your day laborers. So he got up and he went to his father. So there's a, there's a Jewish custom. It's M-E-Z-E-Z-A-H. We'll just say Mezeza. I don't know how to say it. We'll go with that. But the custom is if you, if you inherit from your dad and you go to a Gentile country and you lose your money, you don't get to come back. If you come back, all of the guys in the town come out and meet you, and they take a pot, and they break it in front of you, and they say, you're cut off from this community. The, guy, the kid couldn't go home. He knew if he went home, he was going to face the whole community saying, hey, you disrespected your dad. You humiliated him. You left us. You abandoned us. You went to this Gentile country. We're done with you. You left us, and you're not welcome here anymore. And he knows that's what's in front of him. But he's so desperate to eat. He's so hungry. He doesn't see any way of making any money in the country where he is. And so he decides to go back. And he has his whole speech planned out. You've done that before. Your parents were right and you were wrong and you know how hard it is to walk down the hall and you've got the speech prepared, what you're gonna say. And he's got the whole thing planned out. This is what I'm gonna say and this is how I'm gonna get my dad to take me back. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Listen to this. For this son of mine was dead. He was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Picture that. So this kid has said to his dad, I wish you were dead. I just want your money. 
I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And he leaves. And he blows everything his dad gave him. And at some point, he gets so desperate, he comes back. And he's got the whole speech planned and this, this scheme to work his way back. I don't know if he's repentant at this point or if he's just hungry, but he comes back. Imagine where on the list is dad's gonna see me and he's gonna run out and he's gonna greet me in the city. So all the other guys are about to gather together and get the pot and break it at my feet and say, you don't get to come back. He's gonna short circuit all of that. He's gonna run out, which is undignified. He's gonna run out first and he's gonna embrace me. And so that diffuses the whole situation with the community. And he's going to put a ring on my finger, which says I'm a son again, and I have authority, and sandals on my feet to show that I'm back as a part of the family. And he's going to celebrate me coming home with this party that he throws, this special animal that he's been saving up for a special occasion. That's not on this guy's radar screen for how his father would respond to him, but it's what his father does. Many of you are parents. You think about how you would respond to your kid in a similar situation. This is foreign for most of us. This guy has taken every, everything this kid has is because his dad gave it to him, and he's wasted all of it. He said to his dad, I don't want any relationship with you. He's actually said to his dad, I wish you were dead. And his father's response is to run to him in the middle of the entire village, throw his arms around him, bring him back into the family, and publicly celebrate this son of mine was dead. Was he physically dead? No, he wasn't. But he was cut off from his father and from his family, the source of every good thing he'd ever received. He was cut off from them, so he was as good as dead. And now he's alive. Why? Because he's come home. Some of you in this room, you're dead. You're walking around. Your life is full but you're cut off from your father, the source of every good thing in your life. And what you need to hear is he's not interested in you jumping through a bunch of hoops for him in order to earn your way back into his family. He's longing to move towards you. It's interesting to me that the father runs to the son. What that says to me is he was on the lookout every day. He didn't know what day the son was coming home. Every day. He's looking out. Is today going to be the day that my boy comes back? That's what your father is doing towards you. That's his posture towards you. There's a misconception about Christianity. Some people think that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, Christmas, it's about making bad people into good people or making good people into better people. It's not true. Christmas, the gospel, Christianity. It's not about making bad people good or good people better. It's about bringing dead people to life. If love says, I'm going to do what's best for you no matter what it costs me, the best thing for all of us is to move from death to life, to be reconciled to our Father in heaven. And Christmas reminds us that God makes the first move. At great cost to himself, he sent his son so that any person in this room, no matter how old you are, how young you are, no matter how many times you've sat in church, no matter how much you've sinned, no matter how often you've resisted or rebelled, if you believe in him, you can experience eternal life. Let's take a minute and pray and we're gonna be, we'll dismiss you.
I want you to try 30 seconds in the midst of the chaos of this day and the next 24 hours for many, for many of you. I want you to just honestly ask this question. Am I spiritually dead? Am I cut off from my father? Don't start filling in any blanks after that, just yes or no. Am I cut off from my father? And if the answer is no, praise the Lord. And if the answer is yes, you need to hear your father is anxiously waiting for you. You make one step towards him. He'll close the gap. He's already sent his son as an invitation into relationship. And all you have to do is say yes. He has a robe for you. He has a ring for you. He has sandals for you. He's not ashamed of you. He'll throw a party. Holy Spirit, I pray for any today who would say, I'm dead spiritually. I'm cut off from my Father. I pray that you'd bring conviction, that you would lead each one of us back into relationship with our Father. We're so thankful, Father, that you so loved us that you were so committed to what is best for us that at great cost to yourself, you sent your son on the first Christmas 2,000 years ago so that any one of us that puts our faith and our trust in him can be rescued from death and can experience life. We're thankful that you expressed your love for us in this. While we were still sinners, you came to earth. You lived among us for 30-something years, you died a sinner's death and you were raised to life again. And I pray for every one of us that we would know in these next two or three minutes the profound and rich love that you have. If that's something you've never experienced, you just pray that really simply. God, I want to know that you love me. And he'll show you. God, I want to know in a way that I would understand that you love me. I want to experience that embrace that this young son experienced. You just pray that in your heart and he'll answer. In Jesus' name.